Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Chronic Pain and Paranoia, and welcome to Nightmare Week. It's Nightmare Week! From hyping it up for the last, like, forever. I'm so excited that we're getting started. This is going to be seven days of Halloween, seven days of the scariest, nastiest cases that we can find. Yucky! But it's only seven days to Halloween! Yes, I'm so excited. Luckily, this case... We're starting off a little mild for you guys, uh-huh. but this case involves stalking, so, and to me, stalking is the stuff of nightmares. It is, and it's also just like a content warning if that freaks you out. Of course, yes. Stalking is very common, as we have learned. Uh-huh. Um, but I'm so excited. Emily, and before we get started with our normal intro, uh-huh. I thought we could share... Maybe one of our favorite things to do during the Halloween season, whether that's like a tradition or just something we like to do. Something we like to do? Well, I love everything about Halloween. Absolutely. But one of my most favoriteest things is carving pumpkins. I do like carving pumpkins. Because... I get ambitious though and then I get frustrated. Oh yeah, and then I normally just do a normal jack-o'-lantern. I'm like, Seriously. okay, we're done. I did a cow once, Aww. and it, like, basically fell apart. I also did the Death Star, and wow. that made me want to die. <laughs> yeah, I get that. I've done just, like, normal faces. I just like getting the pumpkin and getting the pumpkin seeds. Yes, pumpkin's the process of one it. of my favorite flavors and favorite scents. Like, my house always mm-hmm. smells like pumpkin because it's delicious. As it should. Yes. One of my favorite things we did as kids... That we actually talked about doing this year because we miss it mm-hmm. is monster cookies oh um we would get like my cousins together or like neighbor kids and we would get this giant tub that we had that we would usually fill with like toys mm-hmm. but we'd like clean it oh yeah and then it was basically a pound of each ingredient and there was like 12 eggs in Mm -hmm. it and then like peanut m&ms peanut butter chocolate chips and we would mix it with our hands Mm -hmm. in the bucket and like everyone left with like a gallon bag or two of batter Mm -hmm. because there was so much that's so fun but we talked about doing it this year Uh at least making monster cookies yeah that'll be fun yeah did you guys ever do that um no not really like i've made monster cookies but yeah, I think the mixing the giant batch in a tub with our hands. That's work. That was, like, a, a my family thing. Yeah. But it was so fun. We don't really do, like, soups on Halloween. My dad makes his famous chili for the mm-hmm. ward chili cook-off. Oh, yes. It's so good. It's, like, mostly meat. <laughs> <laughs> you know, respect. It is not vegetarian friendly. <laughs> Like, the ratio to meat to beans is, like, 10 to 1. Uh, it's crazy. I love to see it. Anyway, but, like, the smell of, like, my dad's chili is, like, Halloween. I that love is it. Halloween. And my mom get pumpkin-shaped bread bowls. <gasps> Those so are a cute. thing? Yeah. I'll let you know the bakery. Thank you. It'll be a trek for you guys, though, sadly. Well, you know, it'll be fine. Anyway. <laughs> uh let's go into our pain scales emily how are you feeling today i know we've technically already used this one but i feel go like for it. roadkill but specifically like farm equipment roadkill farm equipment. like you know that one 
thing that has the rotating thing with the spikes on the front the uh combine yes those are so scary <laughs> right over me cut me in half little little ribbons yep that's how I, I feel, feel that i thought of this on my drive over um have you seen elemental yet Mm-mm. the new pixar not yet so one of the things that the fire people eat are like these little coals mm-hmm. and the water guy has to eat the coals at one point because he's pretending to be a food inspector <sighs> but they're really spicy so, like, as it goes down his throat, you can see his water boiling. It's, like, evaporating. <laughs> and then, like, once it hits his stomach, just a huge bubble scream comes out. Same. So, I feel like I swallowed those coals, but they're just, like, sitting in my back, in my ovaries. Yeah, They're just chilling there. That's a very good visual representation. Thank you. <laughs> you need to watch that movie, though. It's really cute. I know. I have so many movies on my list. Anyway, let's get into our disclaimer. Mm-hmm. Um, this podcast contains sensitive materials such as violence, murder, paranormal activity, and other adult topics. Listener discretion is advised. While we do research all of our episodes, we are just two Emilys with a microphone and a passion for all things spooky. Take it with a grain of salt. All of our sources will be in the show notes. So, if you guys forgot how we're doing Nightmare Week, me and Emily are taking turns doing cases, so I will be presenting today, and Emily just gets to sit and listen. I'm sitting here, just vibing. I'm very excited. We're starting with, hopefully, a little bit more of a tame case. The idea is that we're starting least scary to scariest, with Halloween episode Uh being full-sized, and being the scariest. Yes. So, that's your recap. Okay. I'm excited. I'm going to be telling you about Dorothy Jane Scott. Okay. So, it starts on August 6th, 1984, when a partially charred adult human skeleton was discovered half a mile east of Eucalyptus Drive in northeast Anaheim, California. Uh, Jesse Loza... A construction construction company foreman stumbled upon the remains at around 7.15 a.m. as he and his crew ready to lay pipe for Pack Bell telephone lines. Loza discovered the bones minutes after joking with the crew to, quote, watch out for dead bodies. Yikes. So apparently, I'm picturing, like, an abandoned lot that they're, like, you know, mm-hmm. putting the phone lines up and he's just, like, joking and then, like, he f- finds a charred skeleton that's the opening of a bones episode i know right (laughs) perfectly directed oh for sure the remains were lying next to the partial skeleton of a dog Mm -hmm. it was first speculated by richard rodriguez the county deputy coroner that he or she may have been hiking with their dog when something befell them the cause of death was listed as questionable uh yeah I feel that. They're like, I don't know. It could be something, could be nothing. The remains were scattered over a 25-foot radius, which points to animal activity. The burned nature of the bones occurred when a bushfire swept through the area in the fall of 1982. This led Rodriguez to estimate that the bones had been at the site for over two years. Wow. 
Investigators collected a complete skull, two femurs, a pelvis, an arm, and dog bones. Mm. The area was encircled by housing tracks overlooked overlook the Riverside Freeway and was about 30 feet, 30 feet from Santa Ana Canyon Road. Oh. So the bones were bleached white from the sun, but the skull was complete and contained a full set of teeth littered with fillings. Rodriguez stated that the teeth would be run through the missing persons database in hopes of it identifying the body. Judy Suchi, an anthropologist from Cal State Ful- Fullerton, was brought up to help ascertain the age and sex of the remains. The remains belonged to Dorothy Jane Scott, who had gone missing four years earlier. Oh my goodness. Dorothy was 32 at the time of her abduction and was a single mom to her four-year-old son. She was described by family and friends as loving and giving. She rarely dated and preferred to be home with her son. She loved her family, God, and her friends. She and her son lived with Dorothy's aunt, uh, Shanti Jacob Scott in Santon, California, a 20-minute drive from Anaheim, where her parents lived and where she worked. Dorothy was a secretary for Swinger's Psych Shop and Custom John's Head Shop. Hmm. I don't know what that means. Okay. Swinger's had been previously owned by Dorothy's father, Sean Scott, but now both businesses were jointly owned by someone else. (laughs) Dorothy's father operated as a handyman for the business, and everyone who worked there knew him well. So sometime in early early 1980, Dorothy began receiving distressing phone calls while at work. In all the articles I read about Dorothy, the unknown man is always referred to as, quote, the caller. I'm just going to refer to him as what he really is, her stalker. Okay. Dorothy's stalker would recount intimate details from her daily routine, what she had been doing, who she had spoken with, and where she had been with her son. Mm-mm. At times, her stalker would profess his love for her, Ew. and other calls, he was angry and vengeful. Once, he left a dead rose on the windshield of her car while she was at work. Dorothy confided in her mother, Vera Scott, that she recognized the man's voice but couldn't place it. Then Dorothy received a call that really freaked her out. Her stalker stated, Okay, now you're going to come my way, and when I get you alone, I will cut you up into bits so no one will ever find you. My worst nightmare. Literally. And the fact that, like, she knows she knows this guy's voice, but, like, can't place it. I hate that. It's so unsettling. Yeah. And, like, stalkers are often people we know. Yeah, at least a little bit, you know? Yeah, even if it's, like, the person you see every day getting your morning coffee or... Or a past partner, a distant family member. Yeah, something like that. Shortly after this particular call, Dorothy kicked around the idea of getting a gun for protection. She instead opted for karate classes for self-defense. Whatever works best for you, fam. I know. On May 27th, 1980... Dorothy dropped her son off at her parents' home to attend a work meeting. While at the meeting, she noticed her coworker Conrad Bostron looked ill, and his hand was inflamed from a spider bite. Ooh. Dorothy, along with their other coworker Pam Head, offered to take Bostron to the hospital. He agreed, and the three drove off in Dorothy's white 1973 Toyota station wagon. 
to the UCI Medical Center. They quickly detoured to Dorothy's parents' place to let them know what she was doing. While there, Dorothy changed the headscarf she was wearing. Just a reminder, this is happening in 1980, mm-hmm. so they don't really have cell phones. Yep. So that's why she stopped at her parents' house. Gotcha. At the hospital, Conrad was treated for a black widow spider bite. Pam and Dorothy waited for him, watching TV and reading magazines. After his release at approximately 11 p.m., Pam and Conrad headed to the hospital pharmacy to fill his prescription. Dorothy headed to the parking lot to retrieve the car as she didn't want Conrad walking that far. But Dorothy never returned. Oh, no. Conrad and Pam headed to the hospital entrance with his prescription where they thought they'd find Dorothy waiting with the car, but there was no sign of her. They decided to walk over to where the car was originally parked. As they made their way, they saw Dorothy's car racing towards them. Its high beams were blinding them from seeing uh, who might be driving. The white Toyota station wagon didn't stop or slow down, but instead entered the road and drove off. Huh. Pam and Conrad waited a couple of hours for Dorothy, speculating that some emergency concerning her son may have come up. They contacted the hospital security, but they agreed that there was no reason for concern. During their time at the hospital, Pam and Dorothy were in were in each other's company except for Dorothy using the restroom right before heading to the parking lot. When Dorothy didn't return, Conrad and Pam called her parents. They, too, had had no word from their daughter, and Dorothy was reported missing. At 5 a.m. the following morning, Dorothy's car was found burning in an alley some 10 miles from the hospital. About a week after Dorothy's abduction, her mother, Vera, began receiving calls from her daughter's stalker. Are you related to Dorothy Scott, the stalker asked? Yes, replied Vera Scott. I have her, the stalker said and hung up. He's taunting her family. What a creep. I know. What a creep. Dorothy's family informed the police of her stalker and the phone calls and the threats that she had received. After a couple weeks of fruitless searching, Vera and Jacob Scott took Dorothy's story to the local paper and offered a $25,000 reward for any leads regarding their daughter's case. On June 12, 1980, Pat Riley, editorial manager for the Santa Ana Register, received a phone call from a man claiming to have killed Dorothy. The caller said, I killed her. I killed Dorothy Scott. She was my love. I caught her cheating with another man. She denied having someone else. I killed her. Ew. The caller then revealed clues that had that had been withheld from the public about the night Dorothy was abducted. He knew about Conra- Conrad's spider bite and the color of Dorothy's headscarf, the one that she had changed before heading to the hospital. So clearly... He had been following her for all this time, knew mm-hmm. her daily activities, was following her to each different spot she was going to every day, Mm-mm. was basically lying in wait at the hospital, and when he saw her by herself at night, you know, in a dark parking lot, like, he took his chance. Yikes. Just a reminder, I'm not victim-blaming. Change up your routine, just a little bit. Yeah. So that way you can't be so predictive. Mm-hmm. But I'm not blaming her at all. Also, like, it's hard to not have a routine, especially when you have kids. Yeah, like, it's good to have a routine, but, like, maybe take the long way Mm -hmm. one day or take 
a shorter way stop at jamba juice anything also it's like does he not have a job probably not i wonder if he was like a taxi driver something easy something like that or he worked nights Mm-hmm. the caller also claimed that dorothea called him from the hospital this last detail is the only one that doesn't fit. Pam claimed to have been with Dorothy the whole night at the hospital and said she never made a phone call. Unless Dorothy made a call between using the bathroom and retrieving the car, it didn't happen outside the mind of her abductor. Hmm. He already felt like they were in a relationship and that her talking to, or taking another man to the hospital was, in fact, an act of infidelity. Uh. So that's what escalated it, supposedly. Yikes. We must also keep in mind that this is 1980. There are no cell phones or pagers. Any call Dorothy would have made would have been from one landline to another, most likely a home phone. It's doubtful that the stalker would have had time to make it to the hospital from wherever he received the call in such a short amount of time. Also, she doesn't know who he is. How would she call him? Know his number nonetheless. Exactly. For the next three years, Dorothy Stalker would call Dorothy's parents sporadically. No. The police tapped the phone, hoping for the location of Dorothy's abductor, but he never stayed on the line long enough. Dorothy's Stalker now seemed to be stalking her parents. He only ever called when Vera was home alone. Ew. Then one day, Sean Scott came home early and answered the phone, and suddenly the calls stopped until the news that Dorothy's remains had been found. The call started again. Quote, is Dorothy home? He'd ask before hanging up. The Scots never charged their, changed their phone number, hoping that Dorothy's abductor would allow them to speak with their daughter. That's so it's sad. So sad. Because she had already been dead for years at that point, right? Yeah, three years. Okay. Was she and killed, like, around the same time she was kidnapped then? I think so. Okay. I think she was killed pretty quickly. That's so sad. So, in regards to suspects, there's not much to go on. Dorothy didn't go out much and didn't have a boyfriend. She spent most of the time at home with her son, with her family, or at work, and she went to church regularly. Dorothy's ex-partner, the father to her son, was eliminated early on as a suspect because he was in Missouri at the time of her abduction, okay. and this is in California. Mm-hmm. However, one crime blogger had an interview with Sean Scott, Dorothy's son, in 19, or 2017. Sorry, He named the brother of a co-worker of Dorothy's. Apparently, those acquainted with the, the pair said that he was obsessed with Dorothy. Sean claims law enforcement had their eye on this guy but never had enough evidence to arrest or charge him. The alleged suspect died in 2014. Hmm. In 1994, on Dorothy's birthday, her father, Jacob Scott, passed away. Ferris Scott passed away in 2002, 22 years after her daughter's abduction. They never discovered what happened to Dorothy or who was responsible, and the case remains unsolved. That's so sad. I know. And the fact that, like, after abducting, well, stalking, abducting, and murdering their daughter he was taunting her parents that's horrible is horrific yuck this man is scum of the earth yeah i hope he's rotting wherever he's at yeah and it just it stinks because stalking cases 
aren't taken as seriously as they should be and there's not the legislation in place mm-hmm. to be able to intervene soon enough yeah but like if there had been like they could have figured out who this guy was mm-hmm. it's just so frustrating yeah it's so sad yeah she seemed like a lovely person though all around she was like completely dedicated to her son mm-hmm. and like her last act was going to her car and pulling it to the front of the hospital because she didn't want her friend to walk to the car. Yeah. Oh, It makes me so mad. So, we can remember Dorothy today and her family. Mm-hmm. That's all I have for this first case. Woo-hoo. Make sure you tune in tomorrow and the next day and the next day for our spooky Halloween cases. Woo-hoo. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram at Chronic Pain and Paranoia and to rate, comment, review, subscribe. It helps us out a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, Remember to plug in your heating pads, take your meds, and stay spooky. Stay spooky. Goodbye. Goodbye.